to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode three of our podcast regarding the business court's bench book. My name is Megan Adams, and I'm a judge on the Superior Court in Delaware. We are so happy that you have joined us for our third podcast on the Business Courts Benchbook, published by the American Bar Association. This third podcast focuses on court adjuncts and appointments, and we are fortunate to be joined by Judge Christopher Yates, who authored the chapter on this subject, along with recurring legal issues in the Benchbook. Specifically, we will be discussing mediators, receivers, and special masters. Our panelists are the following. The Honorable Christopher P. Yates. Judge Yates was appointed to the Kent County, Michigan Circuit Court in 2008. He was assigned to run the court's specialized business docket in 2012. Judge Yates is the co-chair of the ABA section of Business Law's Judges Initiative Committee and has served as one of the section's business court representatives. Also on the line are my co-editors of the bench book, Vanessa Tiradentes, a partner at the law firm of Gould and Ratner in Chicago, Illinois, and Douglas Iyer, a partner at McAlpine PC in Auburn Hills, Michigan. We're going to start off today with mediation and the selection of a mediator for a business court. Judge Yates, the question for you is, how are they selected? And are you restricted on ordering a specific mediator? There's no uniform national process either for appointment or selection of mediators, but there are a lot of common elements to appointment and selection of mediators. First off, Whenever someone wants to be a mediator, there are certain requirements prescribed by almost every state, and those requirements ordinarily include a substantial training program, usually 32, 40 hours of work, and then uh, a few mediations done under the tutelage of an experienced mediator, and then uh, a few mediations on your own with somebody else uh, participating. Uh, after that, typically uh, mediators are eligible for appointment, and many states have lists of eligible mediators, which are readily available to judges. For the states that don't, there still are processes for judges to determine whether someone's qualified to act as a mediator. And so mediation services uh, are roughly the same across the country. There are two types of mediation. The most common is facilitative mediation, where the mediator tries to work with the sides in a case to get them to reach an agreement. But the purpose of facilitative mediation is to let the parties work out their dispute. In contrast, the other form of mediation that's fairly common is called evaluative mediation. And in those situations, the mediator acts more like a judge would in a settlement conference by pointing out weaknesses in each side's positions and making suggestions or recommendations about what the court might do if faced with the issues. So if I, as a judge, decide to appoint a mediator, first, I have to make sure I have someone who's qualified. And second, I have to make sure that the mediator knows what the ground rules for the mediation process will be. Okay, that's very helpful. And when you order a mediator, do you order a specific mediator or do you just ask the parties to submit uh, proposed mediators to you? How does that work? 
Uh, that varies from state to state as well. In Michigan, for example, by court rule, we are exp expressly prohibited from picking the mediator. And there's a good reason for that. They don't want judges to steer work to the people who are their friends or professional colleagues. There are a lot of retired judges, for example, who engage in mediation. And the idea is that you don't want a judge to always go to the same well. Uh, instead, you'd rather have the parties settle on someone. So the most that I'll ever do for the parties is give them a list of six or seven potential mediators whom I hold in high regard. But generally, uh, instead, when I direct the parties to go to mediation, I tell them first and foremost to settle on their own mediator. Um, and do you, does your court have the ability in your rules to select another judge to mediate? I know that in the Superior Court, um, something that I think is often underutilized is the use of another Superior Court judge to mediate a case. Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, where I am, uh, I'm one of two business court judges now in our jurisdiction, and we handle each other's settlement conferences uh, in bench trials. And as you no doubt know, having served on the business bench yourself, uh, the vast majority of business disputes are bench trials rather than jury trials. About 80% of my docket is bench trial rather than jury trial if it goes the distance. And so in the vast majority of my cases, uh, when the parties have made it through summary disposition, as we call it, or summary judgment, as it's more commonly called across the country, and the next step in the process would be trial, uh, we'll place a settlement conference between summary disposition and trial, and then I'll handle a settlement conference if it's my colleague's bench trial, or he'll handle one for me if it's my bench trial. Oh, okay. And how about our mediators always required to be attorneys or do you have experience with um, appointing or suggesting mediators that are not attorneys and what circumstances would you do that? Uh, in most jurisdictions, there's not a hard and fast requirement that mediators be attorneys, but as a practical matter, almost all of the mediators that I see are in fact attorneys. There is one exception though, under our new court rules in Michigan on discovery, we now are permitted to use mediators for discovery disputes, including complex electronically stored information discovery. And in some of those cases, uh, I'll intentionally direct the parties to a mediator who has technological competence more than competence with the judicial system, because what we're trying to figure out in ESI discovery disputes is whether it makes sense as a matter of proportionality or as a matter of cost to run down available electronically stored information. So although when I'm trying to finally resolve a case, uh, it's been my experience that almost every mediator is an attorney, we now are seeing opportunities for people who have other skill sets, such as technological skills. Vanessa and Doug, have you all had experience in your practice recently with having um, a mediator for discovery disputes or what has been your experience in selecting mediators? This is Doug. Unfortunately, I haven't had um, any courts that have been actively uh, um, allowing or suggesting mediation for discovery disputes. Uh, I would hope that that would be more common with the courts because quite frankly, my experience is and I've had a couple of cases where we've had extensive discovery disputes, and I and I don't, I tend to find that the courts simply don't have the bandwidth to fully evaluate and appreciate all of the issues going into a discovery dispute, giving uh, the the party that wants to to game the system an advantage by distilling it down to 
simple issues and um, and in really avoiding providing discovery in certain ways. Uh, it seems that you either get a, a situation where the court's going to rule that to have open discovery or limited discovery, and it's going to be based on one issue rather than a, a full evaluation, whereas the mediator has, A, more time because they're going to spend that time that the parties allow. Okay, Vanessa, how about you? Uh, I have not had a mediation that was uh, court appointed, but oftentimes I've had clients where we're ready to engage a mediator to try to resolve on our own. And oftentimes, you know, the parties who are willing to consider settlement are willing to pay for an outside mediator. And I have found especially uh, retired judges who are now conducting mediations to be particularly useful in helping the parties reach a successful resolution of their issues. Um, I think clients tend to listen a little more carefully when there is a judicial presence in the room. Um, but I, I do wish that mediation was simply just a part of litigation as part of court rules, because I think that would definitely be a helpful exercise for litigants generally. Um, I know that right now, because of COVID, uh, Cook County Commercial Division recently updated their rules such that any parties that were scheduled for trials now have a mandatory pretrial conference, which essentially will be a mediation to try to resolve the disputes and narrow the cases so that when we can resume jury trials, um, cases are better suited for that and hopefully parties resolve things ahead of time. Okay. Let's turn to receiverships, uh, Judge Yates. Uh, what are they? What types of cases um, involve receiverships? Um, we'll start with that. Receiverships are essentially processes by which someone appointed by the court is given control of either business assets or business operations, or both, uh, in a case where there are red flags that have gone up that suggest some sort of distress. Uh, the usual red flags you'll see that will cause the appointment of a receiver are unpaid real estate taxes or other state taxes, um, creditors who are not being paid, particularly if those creditors are financial institutions. So in the commercial lending uh, circumstance, for example, uh, there are many, many uh, cases I've had where banks will come in and ask for the appointment of a receiver over a significant commercial borrower because the commercial borrower is obviously going down for the third time. And the view is that at the very least, a receiver should be appointed to deal with the assets and operations of the company in a fairly logical fashion with an eye toward eventually selling off everything to recover whatever can be recovered, or in the best of circumstances, to manage the business more effectively than the current owners are doing, and then hopefully turn the business around and hand it back at some point to the owners uh, once it's back on its feet and profitable. Okay. And how is a receiver appointed and paid? Uh, again, we talked about this with regard to mediators. With receivers, the court has fairly broad authority to appoint receivers. Uh, I described these red flags. Many of them are actually uh, reduced to statutory authorities for appointment of a receiver. But in addition to that, it's fairly common in states to have broad appointment authority for trial court judges uh, in cases where the need for a receiver is significant. I've had several receiverships, for example, where the company is profitable, 
But whether it's a corporation with 50-50 shareholders or a limited liability company with members with 50-50 interests, they just get at loggerheads and they can't work together anymore. And so something has to be done to break the log jam because you have a company that's otherwise profitable, but the two owners can't get along. So in all those circumstances, anyone can petition the court for appointment of a receiver as long as they have a financial interest in what will eventually become the receivership estate. So it could be a creditor, a major creditor. Uh, it could be one of the members of a 50-50 LLC. And in all those circumstances, anybody opposing the appointment of a receiver has a right to an evidentiary hearing. Now, the way that the rules governing appointment of receivers work vary from state to state. Uh, and a lot of judges traditionally have believed that they have carte blanche authority to appoint anyone that they like as a receiver. Uh, there's been a great deal of pushback by the debtor-creditor bar in that area. And so in Michigan, for example, we have amended both our court rules and our statutes governing receivers to require judges to defer to nominated receivers rather than just making their own independent appointment. And so if I have a case where there's a request for a receivership, uh, the universe of possible receivers is typically limited to those nominated by the party seeking the appointment of a receiver, usually a major creditor, uh, or the principles of the company that's going to be placed in receivership, usually the owners of a limited liability company or the shareholders of a corporation. And so uh, to the extent that I once had authority to appoint anybody in the world I liked, I can't do that anymore. Okay. And how about the Uniform Commercial Real Estate Receivership Act? Um, I know that you had discussed about um, that getting picked up across many states. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah. One of my favorite acronyms of all time, the Yuck RERA, came from the Uniform Law Commission. And the idea was to standardize receiverships across the country. Now, there are some limits to the Yuck RERA. Obviously, by its own terms, there must be commercial real estate involved. And so it creates two different categories of receiverships, those involving commercial real estate, which are under the authority of the Yuck RERA, or the state versions of it, on the one hand, and then these general receiverships, which you'll see in everything from uh, some kinds of commercial litigation over personal property to divorces to anything you can think of where there are assets that need to be managed. Uh, now, since uh, Michigan adopted the Yuck RERA in 2018, we have added what some describe as the hip pocket amendment from the Uniform Law Commission, and we've broadened it out now in the last few days, actually, the governor signed the bill, which applies it not only to real property, but also personal property that's commercial in nature. And so I think the expectation and hope over the long term of the Uniform Law Commission is that we would eventually have uniformity or near uniformity across the country, at least with regard to receiverships of commercial, real and personal property. Okay. Um, moving on to special masters. Um, how are they used in business courts? How are they appointed? And are there any specific cases where a special master is especially useful? Special masters are an interesting concept in the law because unlike a mediator, for example, who has no final decision-making authority whatsoever, or actually no initial decision-making authority whatsoever, special masters traditionally have been granted more powers by courts. 
And that's beneficial to the courts in the sense that, as Doug was describing earlier, if you have these big, messy fights where the judge doesn't have the time to devote to managing it, that can be outsourced by the judge to a special master who will just take over the project. Uh, years and years ago, when I was clerking in federal district court, for example, uh, my boss had this extraordinarily complex, far-flung and enormously expensive dispute where there were all sorts of parties fighting over insurance coverage. And he appointed a special master, Francis McGovern, who was a law professor at Duke, to essentially run the entire discovery process. Now, that's all to the good as far as the judge is concerned, because then the judge doesn't have to worry about those sorts of extraordinarily complicated discovery disputes. On the other hand, there's a fair bit of controversy about how much authority can be delegated to a special master because obviously we judges do not have the right to outsource our judicial power to somebody who's not a judicial officer. And so there's always this tension between the amount of authority that judges would like to give special masters in areas where the judge doesn't want to have to deal with the case on the one hand, and the judge's concern about not effectively making the special master the final decision maker and exercising judicial power. And how is a special master paid? Are they paid by the parties? Yes. In my experience, the way special master compensation works is that the court will order the parties to share the cost of the special master's services. Uh, the case I described from years and years ago when I was clerking was particularly amusing because the special master was really just a cost that was a drop in the bucket of discovery. I remember he was sitting next to me in the jury box when we were listening to arguments on various summary judgment motions and he began jotting down numbers on a piece of paper. And then he proudly showed me the figure somewhere of $78,000. And he said, this is how much this hearing is costing per hour. Because he added up the hourly rates of the dozens and dozens of lawyers sitting in the courtroom. So in a case like that, obviously, the parties don't even flinch at the idea of paying the cost of a special master. In smaller dollar commercial litigation, though, where you have just one plaintiff and one defendant, you really are imposing an additional cost on the parties, and you have to decide whether it's worth the expense to do that, because obviously, if you're going to impose $100,000 in costs on the parties in an $80,000 case, you're not doing anyone any good. Sure. So we're going to wrap up with our last topic here, and I'm going to start with Vanessa first and then move to Doug, and then I'll let Judge Yates have the last word on this. And that is, what changes, if any, have you seen as, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic with respect to court adjuncts? Um, Vanessa? I think like I alluded, I think there's going to be a greater use of court adjuncts, particularly mediators, um, to try to resolve cases given the court closures and the backlog that the courts are going to be facing. And a lot of litigants, especially a lot of my clients, are just eager to get things moving again. And unfortunately, you know, it's just not that feasible um, or realistic that things are going to get resolved as quickly. So I think a lot of people are going to turn to that as another option, especially I have not had one yet, but I've heard that um, Zoom mediations are rather successful. So I think a lot of people are going to start using that. And it's definitely more cost efficient for many clients um, when you don't have your attorneys um, traveling all over the place. So I think that's going to be certainly something that people are going to use with more frequency now. Okay. And Doug, how about you? Uh, I haven't seen any increased uh, pressure or suggestive uh, 
measures by the courts in my cases to, to use mediators. Uh, I think most of my cases have requirements already of, of uh, having mediation or at least it's a, a strongly suggest a strong suggestion from the court. I've done a couple of Zoom mediations and actually one in person. Unfortunately, neither none of those have been uh, successful in resolving cases. Uh, but I, I certainly expect that as we uh, try to come out of uh, the the bar on jury trials, that we start seeing uh, more pressure to to push cases into mediation or at least giving uh, litigants the option that if they want their case resolved soon, uh, they're not going to be getting a, a jury trial for a period of time and that that may be their only option of getting resolution. Judge Yates, final words from you. I think Vanessa and Doug really hit the nail on the head. The biggest problem that the courts face as a result of the COVID pandemic is the effective shutdown of all jury trials. And although I can conduct motion hearings pretty easily on Zoom, and I can even run evidentiary hearings and have done so quite frequently on Zoom, and we're opening up in Michigan to the point that I can run bench trials again, jury trials are just pushed so far down the road. We haven't even been able to do a single criminal jury trial in my county since the COVID pandemic. And I don't even know when we're gonna get civil jury trials again. Now, if the purpose of business courts, for example, is to get parties to resolve their disputes in a much more expeditious and cost-effective way, having them sit around and wait for months and months and months to go to trial is the antithesis of what we're trying to accomplish. And as a result of that, uh, I've become convinced that the best way for parties to get to resolution quickly and cost-effectively is to go out and either arbitrate their dispute or go to mediation with it because I just can't give them the final step in the process, nor can I put a, down a firm trial date, which often focuses the minds of the competing parties and gets them to resolution. And so this really, unfortunately, I think has become the stand-in for many of the business court judges, at least insofar as we have jury trials on our dockets. Great. Um, so that wraps up this session, this podcast for today. It's been such a great discussion as always with you, Judge Yates and Vanessa and Doug. I do want to discuss very briefly our next podcast that will be coming up. And we're going to focus on the actual nuts and bolts of um, tips and tricks in ADR. And our panelists for that are going to be Judge Andler, Vice Chancellor Joseph Slights, and Vice Chancellor Donald R. Parsons, Jr. So keep a lookout for that next podcast. It should be very interesting and informative. And thanks again, everyone, for listening today. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.